It has been too long since we've connected. Ted and Yogi's Pac-12 Adventure, Ted Robinson, Michael Molinari, our, our producer. Hi, I'm Yogi Roth. Fellas, there's a lot going on in the world. It is an amazing time to be alive. Uh, all of us have kids, have families. There's, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but I want to jump off uh, first and foremost to just ask how you're doing. COVID-19 is still happening. Uh, racism in America is real. There's a lot of voices that uh, are being elevated right now. And I'm just curious. I know you can go on forever, but you know, in a couple statements, how are you feeling? And what's your stance on where we are today? Ted, I'll start with you. Well, look, Yog, we're, we've all been shaken because none of us, uh, I, can, I can vaguely remember 1968 in my youth, didn't understand what was happening, but I can vaguely remember that's what this is. Um, it feels certainly like the most real and long-lasting impact that these protests will have in our society since 1968. Uh, you know, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily apply to, to the Pac-12 and football, which we'll get into but I have been jarred uh, and I watch every night uh, news, both from the BBC and from France and I, English language from France, obviously uh, I'm jarred by the reaction around the world, that the world is looking and how the world is looking at us in America right now. I don't think that's happened in my lifetime. So that's, that's been the most, most unsettling thing to me. And I think in the last seven to 10 days, well, I would add, I think the thing that I learned watching, listening was educate yourself a little bit. So what I did two nights ago, I went back on Netflix and I'd highly recommend it, LA 92 about the Rodney King riots. And it really gave me perspective on how this, how this anger developed and, and watching it. I was, I was outraged watching it. I didn't, I didn't understand or follow it you know, back then, but looking back at it, highly recommend anybody to go watch that. It'll, it'll give you, I think, a greater understanding of the anger and the outrage. That's, that's the global look for me, the local look, because I have to say it's the last week of school here in the Molinari house. Hats off to the Manhattan Beach School District for learning at home. Kate is going to finish the semester straight A's. Look out, Cal Berkeley or Cornell. Two more years to go. We'll see. And Isabella graduates fifth grade from Grandview, the Grandview Gators, on Thursday. And they're going to do a drive-through to celebrate with their teachers. And uh, I, think, I think locally, it's about hope. That's where I feel right now. I'm hopeful for the future for the first time in a while. And Yogi, since you're about to be uh, welcoming a child into the world to join Zane... And I'm welcoming a grand, another grandchild in about three weeks as well. Uh, that's what I think. You've got. I mean, this is what this is about, right? This is all going on right now for that, for your kids, for my grandkids. Molinari eventually will have grandkids. He'll be about 95, I think. But, um, <laughs> but that's what really. I mean, that's what this is. This has to be better. It has to come out better for them. Yeah, I've been talking to, um, I mean, you know, a lot of people in our community in the football world, and I talked to a lot of black quarterbacks. And a lot of them said growing up, they were told or taught by their fathers or their you know, mentors, hey, you got to be twice as good as the white quarterback. Hey, you need to, uh, you know, I talked to Gerard Johnson the other day. We called some of his games when he was at A&M, 6'5", 250. And he goes, I always knew that I was such an imposing presence. It's like I had to tone myself back. 
And as I talked to them, I said, man, I hope when our next child comes into the world and Zane gets into high school, let alone seniors now that I'm talking to in the Elite 11, seniors to be, they sit at the quarterback table or the sports table and feel like they just have to be themselves. And having a chip on your shoulder is good, but feeling as though you, you can't be you or feeling as though you have to be twice as good as your white counterpart at a position, like I, I, am, I want that to end. And uh, to your point of hope and people talking about these real life issues, I think, I think that's great. And I, and I think it's going to change. I feel like it is. And it's because of the coaches I'm around. Young black men, let alone everyone on a football team, needs good leadership. And to me, like that's going to, you know, elevate maybe beyond how many wins can you get because i think this is a, a really beautiful time and fragile time for athletes where they're they're, they're looking for somebody to, to help them to guide them to coach them to mentorship not just on how to run a corner route and and i'm really curious your thoughts on that and i'm really excited about our conference in regard to that five black coaches and that's dramatically more than obviously everybody else in the country when you look at conferences yeah, amen, Yogi. So let me follow up on that because I, I spoke last uh, Friday. So as we're talking, what's five days ago with Bernard Muir, the athletic director at Stanford. And Bernard uh, had just put out an open letter, just did it the middle of last week to the Stanford community. And I saw it online and I was blown away. So I would just urge anybody, just go to YouTube. Uh, it's available to the public. Just type in Bernard Muir and you'll, it'll pop up. So I talked to Bernard, who is in another part of the country. He went uh, back uh, to another part of the country with his family for a few weeks during this downtime. But Bernard was incredibly open about his experience. He's, uh, I believe, 52, one of the few black athletic directors in Division One. He did this. He wrote this letter because Stanford student-athletes urged him to. The student athletes said, we need to hear from you. Because I've known Bernard casually for almost 20 years, and I've never heard him speak this way. And I've been around him in some social settings, and I've never heard him address these topics, the things he experienced himself. And he did it because the Stanford athletes urged him to. And the, and, and the second point I would make, which is outside the pack, but it connects, uh, there's a 16-year-old, just turned 16-year-old tennis phenom named Coco Gauff, who lives in South Florida. And she stood up last week in her hometown. And she gave about a two and a half minute speech. You can find it on Twitter. It's extraordinary. 16 years old, the poise she has. And in essence, her message was, here's what you can do. Vote. Vote. Vote for me, because I can't vote. Vote for my brother, because he can't vote. But that's the world we're going to walk into. Vote. And so... Uh, of course, uh, a former Stanford player and coach, Eric Reveno, came out last week. He's now at Georgia Tech, and he made this point about having Election Day this year be a, basically an NCAA holiday. Bernard said that's already been discussed. Bernard was talking about this on this conversation we had. That, that's been in motion within the pack about having this so that every it should be every youth who's of age but in this case, we're talking about college athletics. Every athlete should be able to get out and vote. And so I, that's why I would just urge everybody to, to, to listen, which is what I asked Bernard in this point. I said, what can I do as a, a white male of my age group? And he said, listen, that was the first thing he said. I, I would just like to add to what Ted said. Why just make it a Pac-12 holiday? How about the entire country mm -hmm. has election day off? So anybody who wants to vote 
doesn't feel like they have to sacrifice possibly making a paycheck that day to go vote or wait in line for seven hours or whatever it was in L.A. the last time we had an election. It's, it, the time has come, or better yet, let me, let me press a button on my phone and vote. But I know, there's, I know there's a lot of potential problems with that. We're not ready for that, I suppose. But it shouldn't be that difficult to vote, and we should make it easier for people to vote. It should be a Saturday. Why is it, why is it a, a Tuesday? But <laughs> next, we can continue that later, but yes. it shouldn't be that difficult to go vote, and you shouldn't have to make a sacrifice of possibly not getting a paycheck that day to go exercise your right to vote. Yeah, you know, it brings back a story. One of my, it might be, it's a top 10 story in my career um, as a broadcaster. Chris Peterson. Uh, there was a bunch of stuff going on in politics years ago. If you don't know the story, there's an article about it from Bruce Feldman on The Athletic. And his players were frustrated, angry, upset, wanted to have a conversation about politics. And he said, okay, everybody who didn't vote, stand up. And everybody who didn't vote stood up. And he goes, okay, you all can leave now because you didn't vote. So you can't be part of this conversation. And I know those players, that is cemented into their brain around, hey, we have a voice. And I, and I want to ask you guys now, like clearly athletes have more of a voice in college. I was a former athlete in college. I never would have spoke up like some athletes are now in that era, let alone five years ago. Now guys are using their voice and I think more are going to vote for sure because they're just more aware of it. But I'm curious your thoughts, Ted, around athletes and how they're using their voice now around social injustice, around racism, around COVID-19, around just you know, their thoughts in general. Yeah, it's, it's a great call, Yoke, because it just was on uh, 60 Minutes on Sunday night. My friend uh, John Wertheim, who does now as a correspondent for 60 Minutes, among other things, did that very story and that how uh, we've gone way beyond you know, what was addressed in the last dance, the famous Michael Jordan, which he claims he never said, but the point about, hey, Republicans buy sneakers too, the shut up and dribble of more recent time, which was just, you know, a horrendous statement. We're out of that. That's completely washed down the drain. And and I think it's phenomenal. And look, uh, I mean, I think people of, of, of life experience have done this all over the place, but to me, the most significant stance that was taken or at least impact was the NFL. <laughs> look what the NFL players did last week. And then look at the result. And the commissioner finally came out on Friday, apparently unbeknownst to the owners and the commissioner who does not have a very strong bond with the players in the NFL. It's well known came out and made that comment, which was jar. So I, I think that's where we are. And, and again, that's, you know, I'm, I'm the eldest of our trio here. By what, 35, 40 years? Uh, and, and that's, but that's why I asked Bernard Beer that very question when I had him last week. And I said, help me, help me, because I'm one of the many people struggling with what to say. And he said, listen, that was the first thing. And that's exactly what I have tried to do. Rabbit hole late at night, a couple of times going down to find these videos and people, like I said, I've discovered a couple that I didn't realize of of people taking that stand. And again, someone who can remember this, the late sixties and the turmoil we went through this to me is the first time since then. And I think it's more impactful probably because of, or in large part because of social media and the fact that everyone's voice can be heard. Now you don't need someone to broadcast it for you. Uh, I, I, I have optimism that this is going to have the impact 
or have an impact at a much more intense level than we did 50 years ago. I, I jump on what Ted said. The two things I was going to say that have empowered athletes probably in the last five years more than anything, and both of them have a lot of negatives to them as well. One, obviously, social media, which you just said, anybody now can press a button and broadcast their view to the world. And that's a great thing at times. That's a dangerous thing at times, too. And then the portal. You know what? I feel I'm, I'm my brother's a coach. He says the portal has empowered athletes more than anything in the last 20 years. Because if you don't like it, you can leave. And that wasn't an option before. Yeah. And it, it, it makes the athlete a lot more powerful than they were before that, I would say. If you have, if you have choices, you have power. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, there's been a lot of news around name, image, and likeness. Um, Colorado, in our conference, they partnered with a really good friend of mine, Jeremy Darlow, uh, uh, to create a, a program where they're teaching their athletes how to build their brands. And I think to your point of like the portal is like, hey, if I don't like it, I'm out. And a lot of guys are heads like in the sky because they think they're way better than maybe their reality is. I think doing the work that like Colorado is doing and other schools are going to do around name, image, and likeness is going to also bring guys down to reality of, yeah, like I'm not getting the money that I thought from my brand. I'm not as sweet as I thought as I was. So let me get down to like not only what, is real in a marketplace, but also like what, what message do I want to share? I talked to a lot of athletes in our conference when they make bold statements, whether it's around getting paid or anything else. And I say, oh, cool. Like, now have an answer. Don't just have a hot take or have an opinion, but think it through. And I, I think it's going to allow athletes to almost complete the circle of what do I want to stand for? I don't just want to stand up and, you know, get my brand out there. I don't want to just stand up and say that I'm better and I'm getting and hose at my school, somebody jump somewhere else, but really let me jump out there and state like, what am I, what am I really about? And I, I and I applaud Colorado for what they're doing. Jeremy is the best at helping him do that, and it's going to be a fun time to watch as, as so many things happen in the worlds that we're that we're a part of every day. One one more word for me about the portal. I think it's this this entitled, spoiled athlete is leaving because he's not getting his way. Well, sometimes maybe it was the environment I was promised or what I was told was going to happen or the way I was treated in recruiting has changed. And it's not really what I expected or what I was looking for. So I think there's some responsibility on the programs too. It's not all about entitled athletes taking off because they're not getting playing time. And I think that's the spin at times. And I don't think that's always the case. Well, uh, look, I'll chime in because you just picked a scab for me that, you know, wait a minute, the entitled athlete, can leave, but Mel Tucker can turn around and bail. I mean, come on. Right. So I just, yeah. that, that I have no use for that, that position personally, but to swing this to football yogi, because you started this, the NIL, yeah. it's interesting. I've heard two prominent athletic directors in the country since our pandemic has started. I've heard them both discuss this. One was uh, Jack Swarbrick at Notre Dame and the other is Bubba Cunningham at North Carolina. And they've both throwing up major caution flags about the NIL. And that as, as on the surface, it sounds right, very right for players. Uh, the caution flag that Jack Swarbrick in particular threw up though, as he said, recruiting. And he said, that's the thing that we're worried about. And he said this, no matter how conceptually we think this is right for students as it is for the cellist, 
for the student who starts an app in his dorm room. Oboist. Or dorm room. I'm sorry? Kate plays the oboe. Let's go with the, the oboe. oboe right, okay. <laughs> but but, but the, the point was, that's the red flag. He said, we're watching. If we think this skews recruiting in an unfair way, <laughs> that's the red flag. And Bubba Cunningham was coming at it from a more um, general concept of the model that college athletics has had, which is the one that's been attacked in a lot of ways by a lot of people, but trying to police breaking that up is going to be a very dangerous thing. So I thought that was interesting that I've heard two people, and I know both, and they're both pretty smart people, that they've thrown this just, again, I would say they're just caution flags, yellow lights, not red lights, uh, that we don't enter from a red light world into the Wild West. I'm with you. I have a major caution flag because I live it every summer. I'm about to do, I think we're going to do the Elite 11 um, finals this year, mm-hmm. location TBD, but in about two weeks, we're trying to figure it out. Uh, but I see young athletes who have a huge social media following and they don't really know how to handle it, right? And it becomes a love fest, right? The minute Oregon offers a quarterback, the fan base is like, let me go love up the quarterback, right? And then the minute the kid picks somewhere else, the fan base turns on the quarterback, right? Um, especially if he picks Oregon State is, a, is an example here of rivals. What I'm worried about is the quarterback who's in seventh grade, who was Max Brown, when he got offered, Max Brown got offered in eighth grade. Tate Martell got offered in eighth grade. There's a lot of stories of these guys getting offered when they're 13, 14 years old. Now they're like, well, let me buy... 20,000 followers on Instagram. Hey, let me grow my brand. That's so it's at a hundred K when I go to college and a hundred K will get me 300 bucks a post. Well, think of that. Now, when you walk in and you don't play anxiety, depression, mental health, suicide, like all the things that we're about. And we talk about a lot on this show and our platforms. I'm worried about that because then it becomes the dad, the uncle, whoever's managing this kids in air quotes brand managing the brand and not managing still the development of a teenager. And, and I see with these kids every summer, they come in and all they want to do is exhale and not be the dude, not be the five-star guy. They just want to be a human being. And NIL, as you build a brand, there's part of you that isn't a human. And, and I do this presentation to every locker room when they let me in, in in the season. I say, everybody start, name, name the best brands in the world. Apple, Nike, Microsoft. They just go on and on and on. And not one time, guys, I've done this probably a dozen times, not one has a player ever said a human being's name. And I remind them and I say, guys, you are not a brand. Like you think you are, but you're a human being. Like you have a heart and have a soul. Like, so start thinking that way versus how can I monetize my sweet picture with something that I'm holding? So I got a major red flag on name, image, and likeness. I know it's coming through. I still only think there's three players in the country that'll get real money. But I am worried about the recruiting and, and the youth. I would love it if you don't get to get paid until you letter. Like if there's something around it, like you got to earn it in terms of on the field before you just start getting paid. Because you think about it, P. Diddy's kid was at UCLA. He never played a snap. They probably played a couple of snaps, but he wasn't a starter. What would happen to him? He would have gotten paid more than anybody because of who he was. Think of Snoop Dogg's kid, Cordell Brodus. He lasted, I think, like a semester at UCLA. You know, so I, I, there's a lot I, I know that is being talked about. And Martin Germain, we should get on here, the new UCLA AD. He is, he is on it, on name, image, and like. It's probably more so than anybody I've talked to. So um, we, we'll stay on that one, obviously, as it gets going. Yeah, and Rick George, of course, of Colorado, was on the committee yeah. that eventually developed. But it's fascinating to me because probably what? The, if something lit the fuse 
to have this happen. It was at O'Bannon, right? Yeah. A Pac-12 athlete at O'Bannon. Yet I think everyone understands that the SEC <laughs> is where this thing could really, if you talk yeah. about a brush fire, where the offensive lineman is going to get a deal, a deal to go to the car dealership and sign autographs. And the offensive lineman at Oregon State has no shot to have that happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's free market, but the market in the SEC is dramatically different just yeah, in the college. Football. It sounds like the Fed in the stock market. Uh, anyway, that's another story. Yeah, yeah. that's another story. All right, so let's... stock closed at an all time high yesterday, Michael. Do you yeah, notice I, that? I, I do. And I also think that uh, the SEC name, image, and likeness is like our current stock market with the Fed replaced by certain schools' boosters. Anyway, Yogi. Keeping it moving. All right, <laughs> yes. let's talk college football here. I got a few minutes left, uh, and we do on this conversation, um, Ted and Yogi's Pac 12 adventure. The state of college football. Right. It, it, it's beginning to happen. Right. Teams are bringing players back to campus. We've seen as they come back. I think this is going to happen everywhere. Kids are going to test positive for COVID-19. Uh, I saw it at Alabama. Five players saw it at Oklahoma State. I think you're going to see it at pretty much every school in the country. Uh, but they're coming back. You know, Kevin Sumlin in Arizona told me uh, earlier this week they're bringing guys back in groups of 15 or 20 every week. 15 or 20 kids are coming back. So there's a nice little process there so ever doesn't rush um, in all at once. So wh- what are your guys' thoughts around kids coming back and the state of college football? Because it seems as though we're going down a nice path that says, yeah, we'll see you guys at last week on a Thursday night in August calling a game somewhere in the Pac-12 footprint. Ted, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, this goes back maybe three weeks ago now. I heard an interview with a doctor who actually was a classmate of mine in college and uh, was a tennis player, but he's become a doctor and he's now the NCAA's head of medical services, Dr. Brian Hainline is his name. Uh, and he's basically the doctor who is advising the conferences on how to do this medically, how to do it safely. And when I heard him interviewed, it was about three weeks ago, he used the word guarded optimism. He was guardedly optimistic about college football. And that to me was the, again, that was a little bit more of a green light to me. When I heard Dr. Hainline say that, I felt better about the the sense that we're going to have some sort of a season. Again, the form of the season, I'm not smart enough to have it. I don't think any of us are smart enough to know what it's going to eventually be. Uh, The question, which is already being confronted, as players this week start to go in some places for individual workouts is what will you do when somebody tests? Because somebody will test every place, every place, right? What do we do? And as, as, uh, as little impact as this virus has had on younger generation, that's just fact. I mean, the, the, the facts show that the realities are staff, coaches, <laughs> trainers, equipment, people, medical people are all of our, age group, the more vulnerable group. And that's the question I think that everyone has to, to juggle and jar. The second point I would just say quickly about playing games as we get set to see other sports start with no fans, the English premier league is going to start next weekend. The NBA's announced it's going to happen. Uh, college football, the, the, the top schools, top conferences can survive, I think without fans, but get outside the power five. That's a problem. The Mountain West Conference, that American thing back east, those schools to play college football with no fans, there's no upside for that. And I think that's the economic stress that that everyone as a group is going to have to face. 
Well, I want to go back to March, and I don't, I don't think it was Fauci, but one of the metal, medical experts said, if we shelter in place and it's effective, it's not, not a lot's going to happen and everyone's going to say, why did we do this? And I think that's where we are right now. And if people would be, I don't want to say smart, I don't like that word, but if people would still be cautious and wear masks and not be afraid, not say happy days are here again, this is all over, I think we're going to get through this okay. But I think the cavalier attitude caused by we all were camped in our house and, you know, globally, nothing happened. Locally, if you're touched by this, something major happened. So I think that's, that's what I always want to keep in mind. There are people that were touched by this, that this is horrific. But on a global level, it wasn't, quote, that bad. But I think if everybody's safe and they take this seriously, I think, like Ted said, the younger group that are going to be playing football, every day you read something new, but it sounds like outdoor activities are going to be relatively safe. That's what you're reading lately. You're reading also that non-symptomatic passing of the disease is probably a little less than they thought. So those are really good signs. Um, so I feel like, I feel like we're going to have football. And I think if you distance and people will wear masks into stadiums and have their temperature checked on the way in, I think you could have a, you could have a 50% stadium occupancy is what I've been reading. And I think that's doable. I think you take your temperature you don't have a fever right now. You're not showing signs of COVID. You wear a mask. You should be able to come into that stadium. We can distance it. And I think that is a, there is a decent chance of that being a reality. Yogi, when you talked to all the coaches, did, did anybody bring up the locker room scenario? Cause that's been, and I was listening to this Dr. Hainline about that three weeks ago. Cause that to me is the thing that I don't know how you fathom 90 to hundred people in a locker room. I don't see how you can do that. Yeah, they talked about the locker room and even facilities. We've been in all these facilities. None of them are built to socially distance, right? Staff rooms, team meeting rooms. So I, I think of like Arizona State, right? Herm Edwards, I think he's the oldest coach in the league, I believe, right? So you, you look at all the elements that you just referenced around COVID and, and even their staff at times, him and Marvin Lewis, you know? And then I think of their weight room. They've got the biggest screen I've ever seen in a weight room. Like that's where they do meetings, you know, so guys are spread out. You know, I've talked to other coaches they're like, we're doing everything outside, right? And every kid will have an iPad and they'll all watch the film on their own iPad and be socially distant. So I, I think things are going to dramatically change. Uh, I thought about it this morning as the NFL came out with their protocols about how, you know, the buildings are going to get clean. And I think in the league, like there's a natural day off. College football, like there kind of is, but there kind of isn't. There's still people in facilities all the time. So they're going to have to make rules around all of that. Um, and then I think even staffs are going to be like, you know what, after practice, let's watch film on our own, right? Like take it home and watch it. I think it's going to be even healthier for coaches to a certain degree. Uh, the, the questions I think everybody's still wrestling with the coaches I've talked to is how do we do recruiting? You know, like how do we let kids come on campus? How do parents come on campus? And in our schools, to me at least, Stanford, once you get it, you get there, you get it, right? Oregon State, Washington State, some of these schools where it's just a feel, right? Maybe more so than others is, uh, is going to be challenging. And that's why, you know, to a degree, USC is crushing it in recruiting. Kids want to stay home. They've seen it. They're from L.A. So, yeah, kind of a little tangent there, Ted. But there's, um, 
There's a lot of questions, but coaches are on it, man. They are talking through every scenario in the history of the world right now. And then that's a great pivot, you know, you just made because I've talked about this with our friend Don McLean on the basketball side too, is that that very point that families are going to be involved. And and I think we're clearly going to face somewhere along the line, some families are going to say, I'm not letting my kid go play football this fall. I'm letting my kid go to school. I mean, in a country as size of ours, it's going to happen. And th- therefore the pivot you made to recruiting, I'm going to stay home. I'm staying close. I'm, I don't want you, my, my, in this case, my son, I don't want my son going 3000 miles away. You're staying close to home. I, I think that has to be human nature has to play a part in this so that if you're a Southern California, California school, Arizona school, yeah, you may, you may reap some benefit from that. So, Michael, I want to hit you on something because um, you work in the NBA and the NBA is coming back. Like, what, what's, what's going on there? You know, you work for ESPN and ABC on a lot of these games. Can you shed some light? Well, I think people are running through a lot of scenarios right now. Um, I've heard many different possibilities. Announcers will be courtside. Announcers might not be courtside to start, but then they will be uh, – the, uh, for those who don't know about this Orlando facility in uh, uh, Walt Disney runs, basically they have three or four courts and practice facilities and they can isolate everybody in a hotel. I find it interesting that at least still on the calendar, 10 days prior to games starting in Orlando, Disney World's going to open up and have about 10 to 15,000 people going through it every day. Uh, it's just, it's amazing how quickly this is moving. So I believe that if you have 10,000 people coming a day to the facility, then ESPN is probably going to have a decent amount of their people down in Orlando. I haven't heard that yet, but that's my feeling. Um, And obviously, as a production person, the broadcasts are always better when you can be on site and even even get versus being remote. It's just not it's just not the same as someone who's done both. Um, The other thing is, I think we'll be able to get more of our talented technical people on-site in Orlando versus being done from a remote site, Bristol, Charlotte, what have you. So my hope is, and, and it, the other thing is all these great people have been out of work since March or April. So I, I really hope that we're able to get it done, not just because the broadcast will be better, because these great people who've been involved with us for so long are going to be able to get on-site and make a paycheck. And, you know, eventually we all need to make money for our families and live. And that hopefully will happen, will happen soon. Michael, my mother, by the way, told me to tell you uh, that it is six months plus a day residents in Florida to avoid the tax, okay, to become a Florida resident. So she said, make sure you tell Michael every day that you're down there, go get a cup of coffee and charge it. You need the credit card receipt to prove. So that way you'll you'll avoid, you know, because you'll be there probably six months, right? Yeah, it's funny you mention that because when Melanie was, t- we take our twice daily walks with our dog Roman, and I did say, you know, the California taxes, and you know, eventually, and she's like, well, what states don't have taxes? Well, Nevada, I gotta look. Florida, I gotta look. Of we ain't ever going to Florida. No offense to Florida, but that's just that was the look I got. Um, it's a little hot there. It's a little hot, and other other reasons, but. Uh, Florida, not not the okay. not the cards. I love it. All right, we're going to close here in a second, but I got to be selfish, fellas. Um, 
if you can, your best soundbite here. I'm in the fourth quarter. I mean, we are on like the 10 yard line. We're trying to punch it in. We got four weeks left and some change before this new baby comes into this earth. <laughs> I mean, to my mentors, friends, family, guide me here in the last month. I'll get, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> I, I don't know what else. That's, that better be at the top of your list. Sleep now. <laughs> because the next year or two, you'll be, you'll be fighting that one a little bit. But, you know, that, look, we've all been there. Uh, and and yoga's going you you're going through the baby rhythm for the first time and it's so much more of a joint exercise both parents equal than it ever was before the traditional model that i grew up underneath gone it's a joint exercise i'll give you one kind of piece of advice that is a memory and something that i was able to capture that i'll never forget make sure the camera is running the first time zane comes in to see the baby it's an incredible, magical moment that you'll want to have preserved forever. And I know sometimes, like, I'd rather experience it. That's what maybe you don't capture it. Have somebody capture it, but make sure you get it. Because it's Zane loves Isabella, sees that video, and loves it. My younger daughter sees her, her older sister come in and see her for the first time. We watch it probably once a year. The photo is unbelievable. Yeah. That's the one thing I'd say. Make sure you get that. And I'll say one more thing uh, in, in lieu of Michael, a semi-humanity thing here, because it connects to Yogi, a fellow that Yogi mentored, Larry Fitzgerald, wrote a piece in the New York Times on Sunday. Go online and find it uh, because it's brilliant. And Larry Fitzgerald writes about Minneapolis. Not This is not the Minneapolis he grew up in. And, and I lived in Minneapolis for eight years. I knew Larry Sr. when I was there. Um, and that was the time Larry Jr. was a baby growing up. And I feel the same way. This is not the Minneapolis I knew 25 years ago. But I thought it was so well said. So, Yogi, good job mentoring him. Oh, well, <laughs> it was a pleasure and it was a beautiful piece. Please check it out. All right, fellas, I, I enjoyed this. I hope we get another one in before this baby shows up in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and uh, thanks for uh, being a part of the conversation. Yogi, they don't everybody. always show up exactly when it's scheduled, just so you know. You might yeah. be getting a call in five seconds. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. I'm going to go pack the bag for the hospital. Out. I'll be back. Love you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.